0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. is probably automatically open to Luke chapter 8 at this point, and everything from 9 to the end is still stuck together, unless you've been reading them recently. But if you would flip ahead to chapter 19. Just hold your place there. This morning we'll look at verses 28 through the, through the end of the chapter, but really looking at verses 28 through 40. Before we dive into the text, I want to take you back in time a little bit to the year 586 B.C. 586 bc if you know your bible history you know that was a significant year in the history of israel and it was in that year that the prophet ezekiel was on the scene as god's spokesman to the nation in the time of ezekiel around 586 something had happened to israel progressively over time they had abandoned the lord they had abandoned their lord And they had committed abomination after abomination in his sight. They had done evil. They had rejected him and embraced an evil lifestyle. Despite his warning time and time again through the prophets, they persisted in their pathway of of destruction. Despite his warnings, despite his pleadings for them to repent and turn. By the time we get to 586, the warnings are Done. There's no more warning to come, and there's no more pleading from the Lord. Judgment on Israel is set, and it's about to fall on the nations. God has designed an executioner to come. The, the Babylonian army, they're going to come, and they are going to devastate Israel, and they are going to destroy the city, and they are going to slaughter a bunch of the Israelites, and those who survive are going to be sent into exile it is going to be an awful, awful event in the history of the nation. Massive loss of life, massive bloodshed, and those who survive will likely wish they had been killed. It's the judgment of God coming on His people for their rejection of Him. But just before this takes place, God gives Ezekiel a vision. And in that vision, he shows him a number of things. He shows him some examples of the kinds of abominations that his people have been committing, the reason for the judgment that is to come. But after he shows him those things, and after he gives him sort of a taste of what is about to happen, he shows him one last sight in this vision. And it would have been a devastating kind of a sight for any Jewish man who is steeped in the Old Testament. Any Jewish man who had some sort of commitment to the Lord would really have crumbled at the sight of what Ezekiel sees. We don't have time to go into the entire prophecy, but I do want to give you one little glimpse of it. The very end, Ezekiel eleven twenty-three. 23. This is what God shows Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. And it went and stood on the mountain that is east, on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. After God describing to Ezekiel what is getting ready to happen to the nation and why, he shows him something that is symbolic in a lot of ways. But it is very important, the glory of God that had rested in the center of the city, the very presence of the Lord in Israel, had done what? It it left. In a very real way, it was God showing Ezekiel that I am no longer in the city. This is no longer my place. God had removed himself from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the glory of the Lord rested on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel doesn't see where the glory of the Lord goes from there. He's just left with this this vision of the glory of God leaving Jerusalem and resting on the Mount of Olives. And all of what Ezekiel promises, or excuse me, all of what the Lord promises through Ezekiel's prophecy comes comes true in 586. All the horrendous things that happened to the nation. But the book of Ezekiel does not end there. It doesn't end there with this picture of the glory of the Lord departing Israel or departing Jerusalem. He tells us one more important truth that is God through Ezekiel. That one day God's promised Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna show up and he's gonna redeem Israel. And in particular, he's gonna show up in a particular location, the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel 14, verse 4. Speaking of that day, God says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives it shall be split in two from east to west. So there was sort of bubbling underneath the surface in Israel these prophecies It's the glory of God departing Israel and and landing on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives being a very significant place because the Redeemer, the Messiah, the King is going to show up. And when he shows up on the scene, he's going to show up on the Mount of Olives. As we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we see a really remarkable sight against that backdrop. We see Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, standing at the Mount of Olives, this very location. And Luke tells us that his intent is to make his way into Jerusalem. In a very real sense, God himself is returning to the city. He's coming back to Jerusalem where the glory of the Lord had left in Ezekiel's day. The question we're left with though is for what purpose? Why does he go to Jerusalem? What does he seek to accomplish there? Has he come to restore the glory of God back to the city? That was the hope of every Israelite, that the Messiah would come and do that very thing. Has Jesus come to do that, is the question. And as we jump into Luke chapter 19, we we see the events that begin to unfold immediately upon this, this sort of event where Jesus shows up on the Mount of Olives and starts to make his way toward Jerusalem. It is the, the thing that we celebrate every year on this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. It is, it is better known as the triumphal entry of Jesus back into the city of Jerusalem. And it is a, a very, very significant event in the final week of his life. It's significant for a number of reasons. But in particular, it is significant because once these events start to unfold... There's no turning back. The wheels are in motion that are going to lead to the cross. And there's no way to stop it. And there's no way to undo it. Once these events happen that happen on this day, Christ is going to the cross where he will die for the sins of his people. It is a process that begins here and ends when he breathes his last breath. And then ultimately when he rises three days later, But it all begins here. As Jesus returns to the city. All four gospel writers record this particular event. You heard uh, heard Matthew's account already read this morning. We'll look at Luke's account primarily in our time together. But all four gospel writers record this. Two of them, Mark and John, are both eyewitnesses to the events. Luke and Matthew were... Were, were men who were not eyewitnesses to these events, but they got their accounts from people who were eyewitnesses of the events. If you read this story in each of the gospel accounts, you'll find that each gospel writer records the event a little differently. Each gospel writer, like in many of the things we've seen already working through Luke, is, is speaking to a different audience, and each gospel writer has different priorities as to what he includes and what he excludes. And so it's not going to surprise us when some of the details from one account to the other are a little different. What we're going to do, as we do in every account where this happens, is we take a composite account and we get the big picture of what's going on. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it this morning. Uh, but establishing what happens in this first, the first part of the Passion Week, the timeline, the chronology, is a little bit of a, of a tricky endeavor. It's not the easiest of tasks. Once we get to about Thursday, it's very clear and very specific what happens from Thursday through Sunday. But what happens earlier in the week from Sunday through Wednesday is a little bit murkier. And there are at least two different ways to sort of lay out the chronology of what happens. And that is somewhat relevant to the text that we're looking at today. The traditional sort of chronology that that maybe you heard most growing up and for which today is named Palm Sunday... Uh, identifies that the events that we're going to read in Luke 19, the triumphal entry of Christ, happened on Sunday of that week. Thus we call it Palm Sunday. By that account or by that approach, if we have Jesus coming to Bethany on Saturday and him entering Jerusalem and these things taking place on Sunday, as we start to make our way, what we find in that particular chronology is there's a big gap on Wednesday. Wednesday sometimes called silent Wednesday. We don't have any information about what takes place on Wednesday if that's the way we understand these things to, to sort of roll out. And then, of course, the activity picks back up on Thursday with the disciples gathering in an upper room and all of the things that take place there. There is another way to sort of lay these out, and New Testament theologian I. Howard Marshall has, has sort of Been a key figure in in laying them out this way You can research this on your own Maybe we'll talk about it later Or maybe next week But but Marshall says that The the timeline is a little different than that That Jesus arrives in Bethany on, on Saturday However, the triumphal entry does not take place until Monday So it might be better, according to Marshall For us to celebrate Palm Monday Rather than Palm Sunday If we understand the chronology that way Then there's no gap on Wednesday And there's some other reasons why that would be an important way or a significant thing if that were the case. Again, we'll explore those later, and maybe you can do your own study on that. I'm inclined toward Marshall's view on this. I think that it makes a little more sense to me that these events took place on Monday rather than Sunday. But we can talk about that offline. Regardless of whether they took place on Sunday or whether they took place on Monday, the event is still the same event and it still really contains the same significance. We find that, that this all takes place at the time of the Passover. Jewish people would have been flooding into Jerusalem at this time of the year, literally flooding from every direction. People making this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, celebrating what took place back in Exodus as God redeemed and saved his people from the death angel that was coming over. Uh, in judgment to the Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites, God saved his people by causing the death angel to pass over their homes due to the blood of a lamb being s- smeared on the, the lentil, the doorpost of their home. And so all of Israel was really heading towards Jerusalem, all those who could make the trip to celebrate the, the Passover. And most uh, commentators estimate it would have been somewhere around a, one to two million people coming into the city for this particular event in the first century that's a lot of people a massive crowd of people sort of converging on Jerusalem somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two million people and up to this point Jesus has been doing ministry for a long time and his reputation has continued to grow and people know the things that he's done and word is spread about his miracles and about his teaching and as his reputation has grown so has the opposition to his ministry John if we were to read his account makes known earlier than this that the religious leaders have already determined that Jesus needs to be executed. They need to get him out of the way. His popularity is growing too fast and too vast. He is a threat to their power. He is a threat to their income stream. He is a threat to their whole religious system. And they'll make the case that he's a threat to the nation via, they'll argue, He's going to set off an insurrection that's going to cause the Romans to come down on the Israelites. And so they oppose him. And they've set to kill him. Their plan is, at least according to John's gospel, to sort of try to hold off on this until after the Passover, when the crowds have sort of dispersed, because they are afraid that he has enough support in the crowds. If they try to do something at Passover, it could go bad quickly. But there would have been some kind of a buzz going around the city this particular year because Jesus has been, his popularity is growing and the opposition is growing and people know that. There would have been some sense in which people were wondering, is he gonna come for the Passover? And if he does come to Jerusalem for the Passover, what's gonna happen? How will the religious leaders respond to his appearance? And what will he do when he gets there? And so all of that is sort of in the background where we pick up in verse 28 of Luke 19. Where Luke reports to us this. He says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, because we've jumped ahead in Luke's gospel and we haven't studied chapter 18 We don't know what he's talking about when he says, when he had said these things, but just as a quick recap, in in chapter 18 of Luke, Luke reminds us of the ministry of Jesus in Jericho. Jericho is 17 to 20 miles away from Jerusalem, and it was there that Jesus did some pretty remarkable things. Most notably, Luke is going to record for us that when he comes to Jericho, he's going to have an appointment with a, a short tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. You recall the story of Zacchaeus if you ever went to vacation Bible school as a kid or grew up in a Sunday school class somewhere. You remember that he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And that he climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? That's what we recall. It is in fact quite accurate as to how Luke tells the story. And Jesus, upon seeing this, This hated tax collector, in fact, the chief tax collector, we're told, up in a tree, says essentially to him, Zacchaeus, come on down out of the tree. I've got an appointment. I'm I'm supposed to stay at your home today. And Jesus accompanies the man to his home, and salvation comes to the house of this this hated tax collector. And the fruit of his repentance is is evident as he seeks to make amends for all the wrong that he's done. And Jesus says at the end of that account, as Luke records it, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. He came for people like Zacchaeus, that they might be sought and that they might be saved. Mark reports to us that in Jericho he also healed two blind men, and that would have been something that would have traveled just as much as the scandalous salvation of someone like Zacchaeus. And then Luke records for us that he told a parable about uh, a nobleman, a nobleman that, that went away to go uh, be coronated into his kingdom, and he leaves behind some servants to take care of his property while he's gone. Fascinating and detailed sort of a parable. That concludes chapter 18, verse 27, by saying this. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's a very prophetic statement at the end of a, of a parable that was telling of what was about to happen to the people of Jerusalem. Who, like the nobleman in this parable, did not want the king to reign over them. It's a striking warning. But it's after these things, after Zacchaeus, after the blind men, after this parable that we're told that Jesus turns from Jericho and he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. Now, we we could go all the way back to Luke chapter 9 and we could see that even early on in his ministry, Jesus is making it clear and Luke wants us to know that this is where ultimately Jesus is headed. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's making other stops along the way, but Jerusalem is his final destination. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and so by the time we get to chapter nineteen, he's been working in this direction for a while, but this will be his final trip to Jerusalem. And Jesus is very well aware of what awaits him in this city, and it's for these very things that he's come. In fact, he's already told his disciples exactly how things are going to play out, in chapter eighteen, verse thirty-one. Luke tells us this. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Jesus told them, exactly what is about to happen he is not unclear about how things are going to play out in fact everything is operating according to his timeline he's going to only spend one week approximately in Jerusalem but this week is a week that literally changes the entire world it turns the entire world upside down because when he gets there he the son of God is going to be arrested he's going to be crucified he's going to be beaten He's going to die for our sins, and he's going to rise from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating hell, defeating the grave once and for all. The world will never be the same. And there's a sense in which from the moment he was born, this was his destiny, to enter Jerusalem, to be crucified on a cross. Everything has been leading up to this. His ministry and his life is very shortly going to come to an end. You can in fact zoom out the, pic, the, the camera of, of, of human history and you could even say really him coming into Jerusalem is not just really the, the, the culmination of his life in ministry, but it's the culmination of every event that has taken place since the Garden of Eden in fact. When, when Eve first took a bite of that forbidden fruit and sin entered the human race, everything has been leading up. To Jerusalem and the Son of God entering that city. And so he heads in that direction from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Jericho is literally up from Jerusalem. Excuse me, Jerusalem is literally up from Jericho. 3,400 feet in elevation difference between Jericho and Jerusalem. I have a little map that you can see, that uh, if you can see it, Jericho is on the right, on a plain down low, and you can see this trip from Jericho to Jerusalem, starts down on the plain, and it winds its way up through this hill country, up into these, this mountainous area, all the way up to Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which is at literally 3,400 feet elevation. So this is a long, I say a long, it's 17 to 20 miles, depending on an exact route. But it's an arduous and difficult journey It would have taken about seven or eight hours To to make that trip by foot And it wasn't an easy trip It's a long trip And it's a trip up If you're a hiker you understand These things right It's not the same thing hiking on level ground As it is going up a mountain But they're making this trip And he's going up to Jerusalem And he's going there for the last time Luke mentions to his two villages Bethphage and Bethany And he mentions the Mount of Olives Two small villages near the Mount of Olives Bethany is a famous place From where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived And Jesus was often in Bethany And he used it as sort of a stopover there Where he could stay overnight with his friends And when he gets to this area Around the Mount of Olives Everything begins to happen Very, very quickly What Jesus does from here Sets in motion a sequence of events That leads him quickly to the cross And once he does it There's no turning back There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. And it all begins with him doing this thing. Luke records in verse 30. He sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You'll say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and and found it Just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now you've got to put yourself sort of in the disciples' shoes at this point. As they're making their way toward Jerusalem, Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen. The disciples, we, are, are, we already understand, have been told, but they don't understand really what's going on. And so Jesus pulls two of them aside and says, man, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go ahead to the city, and I've got a, a, a job for you to do, a very specific set of instructions, and, and this probably seemed odd to them. Go into the village. You go find a colt untie it and bring it back to me. Now, that must have seemed like a very odd thing to say, right? You want us to do what? To go into the city, find a colt, and we're just to untie it, and we're just to snatch it and bring it back to you, right? That's right, Jesus says. Go get the colt. Not just any colt, though. It's a particular colt that you're looking for. It's a colt that no one has ever been that's ever ridden on before. Nobody's ever sat on this colt. Somehow, they're going to be able to identify that this is an unbroken colt that nobody has ever ridden, and it's going to be clear and obvious for them. I'm sure they're wondering how, but Jesus had already paved the way for this. Why an unbroken colt? Well, unbroken animals were considered sacred in the Old Testament, and it was the appropriate kind of a ride for a king Since in ancient times a a king's mount Could only be ridden by a king and no one else The disciples don't understand what he's doing at this point But they will shortly If you paid attention to the scripture reading That Steve read earlier In Matthew's account Matthew tells us that Jesus told him to get not just the colt But that they would find the colt with its mother, a donkey So there were two And they find them just that way and the instructions are to untie it and to bring it. So once the, the, the colt is located, untie it and bring it. And if you lived in the first century, you would understand donkeys aren't cheap. Like donkeys may be cheap compared to like a SUV today. But in those days, donkeys were not cheap. This was no small task that he was asking them to do. Can you imagine their bewildered looks? Uh, He was pretty much telling them to to roll up into town and and, and it's the equivalent of rolling up into someone's driveway and opening the car door and pushing the button and say, hey, let me have the keys. Taking your, your ride today. You can imagine the disciples, we just take it? Like, do we need to pay or do we need to ask somebody? We just walk in, grab it and go? Nope, just untie it and bring it here. And Jesus clearly anticipates their objection. And he says, you know, the objection that's running in their minds, what would be the objection running in your mind? What happens if somebody catches us? Like, Jesus will do anything for you, right? But what happens if we get caught with this thing? What are we going to do then? I'd rather not go to jail today. And Jesus says, if anybody asks you, anybody says to you, why are you untying the colt? Just simply tell them the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. The Greek there could be translated another way. it could be translated, "Its Lord has need of it." Just tell them that the one who made it needs it." That's the answer. Just tell them the one who made it need it needs it. Now, in, in what sense does the Lord need this donkey? I mean, it's, it's interesting for us to think about the Lord needing something. In one sense, he's the creator, right? Everything is his. We know that from the Psalms. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's, right? And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in, therein. So everything in the Lord, everything in the world belongs to whom? Well, it belongs to the Lord, to the one who made it all. He made everything, and everything rightfully belongs to him. So in a sense, by taking the cold and bringing it to Jesus, they were in a sense bringing him what was rightly his to start with. But in a human sense, Jesus really didn't have very much, at least in the way of possessions. He didn't have a home. He didn't carry money around with him. He didn't have any real possessions. He didn't drag a U-Haul around Galilee from town to town carrying all his stuff because he didn't have any stuff. He had shoes on his feet. He had a robe. The Lord provided every step of the way. But he was never one to accumulate things. So anything that he needed, in some sense, had to be physically acquired. And on this day, he needed a donkey. So they were to go get it and tell the owners the Lord needs it. When the disciples arrive at the village, everything happens exactly the way he said. They find the coal and they start to untie it. And lo and behold, guess what happens? The owners come out and say, what are you doing? Why are you taking my donkey? And they say to him exactly, exactly what Jesus said to tell them. The Lord needs it. And they say, apparently, okay, the Lord needs it. The Lord's got it. And so they take the donkey back to Jesus. If the Lord's need it, then you can have it. What a great attitude that is, right? What a great attitude that is for someone who has something that's, that has some, some tremendous value. Oh, that every one of us held our possessions that loosely, right? Oh, that we all held the things that we have that loosely. That the things that we held meant so little to us, really, in light of who Christ was and what he means to us, that if the Lord needs something or he wants something that belongs to us, we would just gladly, open-fistedly say, Lord, it's yours, take it. Just like that cold, everything that you and I own rightfully belongs to him too. Doesn't it? Everything that we have is, in a sense, on loan from the Lord. We're stewards. We're not owners. The things we have don't belong to us, they belong to Him. He's given them to us to enjoy, to have for a season. But at any moment, the Creator of the universe has the right to say, That's mine, and I need it back for a season. If the Lord wants us to let go of something, how easily do we do that? The owners of this donkey obeyed quickly. Now, why would somebody do that? Well, there's all sorts of explanations, and if you read 10 commentaries, you'll get 10 different answers as to why people would do that. So I don't particularly encourage you to do that, but you can if you just want to. Some people say, well, Jesus probably had prearranged all this. He had he'd probably set everything up in advance. So the owners knew that they should be expecting something like this. Others say, well Jesus was just very well known and and everybody would have known that he was in the region and in the area so when someone said the Lord needs it the the owners certainly would have had a context for that in which to turn it over. Some would argue that maybe this is one of his followers. Somebody who was already following Christ and when he's told that the Lord needed it it was an easy thing for him to let go of it. We'll never know exactly what the case is what we do know is that Jesus knew every single detail of what was about to happen and exactly how it was going to happen and it wasn't just that he knew that these things were going to somehow unfold he was in fact sovereign over all of these things he is orchestrating the timeline of every single detail from this moment to the resurrection and we see it all throughout the narr- all throughout the narrative right He knows Peter is going to deny him well before Peter knows he's going to deny him. And he describes for him exactly how it's going to take place. He knows that that Judas is going to betray him. And he says how this is going to play out before it ever plays out. When they need a location for an upper room, a place to share Passover, a very similar situation plays out and he sends the disciples ahead telling them what to do and how it's going to happen. Everything that is happening at this point is under his sovereign control. Nothing is catching him off guard. Nothing is surprising him. Everything is happening according to his divine timetable. And he is the sovereign king over everything, right? He's sovereign over his creation. It all belongs to him. He can confiscate what he wants whenever he wants because it all belongs to him. He's sovereign over time. Nobody is forcing a timetable on him. He's operating according to the divine timetable that's been in place for generations. He is sovereign over all the events of the last week of his life it points to his kingship but that's not the only thing that points to his kingship because we're told what plays out after they get the donkey makes it even clearer they brought it to Jesus and we find out exactly why he wants his colt he wants his colt because he's planning to ride on it where to Jerusalem now that seems to be an odd thing to do doesn't it Do we have any other account in the New Testament of Jesus riding on anything, anywhere? How does Jesus get around? He walks. He's walked all over Galilee along with his disciples, right? He's walked everywhere. He's just walked 17 to 20 miles from Jericho up to the Mount of Olives area. That's how Jesus got around. He walked. He wasn't some some prince or king or potentate that had other people carry him around or that went with some sort of an entourage that, that went before him with pomp and circumstance. He walked everywhere he went, just like common people did. He isn't pictured riding anywhere, but this day is different. This is a very deliberate action on his part, and it's filled with all sorts of symbolism. You see, over 500 years prior to this, the prophet Zechariah had delivered a Messianic prophecy. And here's what Zechariah had said in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus, steeped in the Old Testament, knowing exactly who he is and what he's come to do, is intentionally with his donkey fulfilling Zechariah nine. He is intentionally and publicly fulfilling this prophecy for everybody to see. He's declaring his messiahship and his right to rule over Israel. He is the divine Davidic king, the messiah, who is coming not to conquer but to save. You may remember in our study of Luke so far back in chapter 8 when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. What was the last thing that he said to this family, to Jairus and his family, after he raised his daughter from the dead? You recall? He said to them, keep this quiet. Don't tell people. Don't go around telling everybody what happened. Jesus didn't want to raise a stir before the time was right. He didn't want to draw a crowd by miracles until it was the divine time to do so. And now is the time. And Jesus is now, via this donkey, declaring publicly his claim to the throne of Israel. His messianic claim, his claim that he is not just a man, that he is not just a prophet, but he is Israel's long awaited king and redeemer and savior. And so he rides to Jerusalem on a donkey. And riding a donkey shows that he's a different kind of a king, too. He's not a prideful king, he's not a prideful king that's returning from war on a war stallion with an army. He's riding on a donkey, a humble, gentle kind of a king who's coming not to make war and to conquer, but to save. Which is a remarkable contrast to what it's going to look like the next time that this king shows up in Jerusalem. That's in Revelation nineteen eleven, where John says this, Then I saw the heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Then the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Such a striking difference, isn't it? The one who's one day gonna show up on a white horse to execute judgment on the nations. The one who is gonna show up with an army. The one who's gonna show up in ferocity and judgment. On this particular day, gets on a donkey. A humble, simple donkey. And he rides his way into the city. And he does so not to make a political statement. He's not coming to overthrow political enemies. He's not coming to overthrow the Romans. He's coming to overthrow the power of sin. He's coming in humility to die for the sins of his people, to make a way for men to have peace with God. That's what he's doing. But nobody gets it. The disciples partially get the symbolism. They understand Zechariah nine, 9 and they understand the donkey, and so they, it clicks in their head. And so we're told that they start throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they pick Jesus up, and they, they set him on it, right? In a sense, declaring his kingship. And in one sense, at least, the disciples have been waiting for this. They've been waiting for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. They've been waiting for him to set up his kingdom. They think, like the rest of the Jews did, that that's what he's come to do right now. It's so like a like a football team that just won the championship. They pick their coach up and they sit him right on the donkey, and they move toward Jerusalem. And as they do that, two crowds converge. There's a crowd that's been following them from Bethany toward Jerusalem. And then there's another large crowd that's in Jerusalem that hears what's going on and is making its way out to meet them. So somewhere along the way, uh, that trip between the Mount of Olives and towards Jerusalem, these two crowds come together and, and form a really a massive mob of people somewhere in the neighborhood of up to 100,000 folks. That's a big crowd, right? They come together and they're escorting Jesus and his disciples toward Jerusalem. The crowds see Jesus on this colt and they understand the symbolism of Zechariah 9.9. And it works them up into a literal frenzy. They see him and they begin to regard him as the Messiah. They believe their Messiah has come and that he's come and he's what they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years, that now is the day the king is there. He's on the colt, the foal of a donkey, and he's heading toward Jerusalem. All of their messianic hopes are wrapped up into this, and they see him going toward Jerusalem, and they honor him as the king. They worship him as the king. They're throwing their cloaks on the road, recognizing his kingship. They're, they're in, a, in, a, in essence saying that he's too valuable to walk on any ordinary road. He needs to walk on a royal carpet. That's what he deserves. It's also an act of submission. It says we're, we, uh, the best that we have is, is, belongs underneath your feet. Our whole lives are underneath you. John tells us they did something else in John 12:13 they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the king of israel they're rejoicing and they're praising god this can you imagine this crowd of up to 100,000 people in an absolute frenzy of worship believing that the messiah is come and honoring him as such with the the worship of their lips This was not a docile crowd. This was not your average Sunday morning church service in our day. These were people who believed all their hopes and dreams had come to pass in Jesus. And worship was exploding out of their hearts and through their bodies in every way you can imagine. Jesus is finally receiving the worship that's due to him. Even if it's temporary, it's what he's deserved all along, isn't it? If men really understood who he was, this would be the reaction of every human being in his presence, wouldn't it? To humble yourself and throw yourself before the king of the universe and to declare his praise for everyone to hear. What a worship service this was. Luke has been presenting to us sporadically throughout the book Jesus as the king of the universe. Now everybody is openly acknowledging him as such. They don't fully understand what he's doing. They don't even fully understand what they're doing. But what they're doing is right. And it's truly what he deserved. Well, why are they doing it? Well, they knew the prophecy of Zechariah. They believed that the Messiah was coming. The problem is they didn't understand the nature of the Messiah's coming. They still believed that Messiah was coming to overthrow the Romans and to establish his rule in Jerusalem and restore Israel to its former glory now. And they think that's what's going on. They think that's what Jesus is coming to do. They think that he's come to execute justice. They think that he's come to restore Israel. They think he's come to establish their kingdom. They have no idea that the Messiah is coming first as a suffering servant. They understood Zechariah 9-9, but they didn't care too much for Isaiah 53. They had no sense for which he would come to be despised and forsaken by men. They had no category for him to come and be scourged so we could be healed. They had no thoughts of him being pierced through for our transgression or crushed for our iniquities or killed and assigned a grave among the wicked, killed so that people could be saved. And had no sense for any of that. They had no idea that he'd come now to save and he was going to come later to execute justice and deal with his enemies. They think he's coming now. To overthrow Rome And my goodness are they in for a surprise Because you'll never believe what Jesus does When they get to Jerusalem Have you ever thought about that? What does he do when they get to Jerusalem? This whole crowd ushers him Riding a donkey right through the east gate Into the city He go right to the temple And what he does is going to shock the entire crowd This whole crowd that's worshipping him As the Messiah He goes straight to the temple Do you know what he does? He doesn't do anything. He does absolutely nothing. Mark tells us that in Mark 10, 10. He entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. You talk about an anti-climax, right? He goes into the temple, and he looks around, Doesn't give a speech, he doesn't start an insurrection He doesn't challenge and bring down the Romans He doesn't give a uh, 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 He doesn't rally the crowd He just looks around and he leaves And goes back to Bethany Well the worship ends pretty quickly Doesn't it When the crowd realize He didn't come to do what they thought he came to do He doesn't overthrow the Romans He doesn't do any of that He just walks out of the city. And because he doesn't meet their expectations, and because he makes it very plain that he's not the kind of king that they were wanting, within a matter of days, they turn on him. And the next time we hear the crowd saying anything, the crowd is screaming, crucify him. Just a few days later, Our time is almost up, but we would be remiss if we didn't note this. There were Pharisees around, and they were not one bit excited about what they were seeing taking place. This big mob of people hailing Jesus as king. They might have wanted to wait till after the Passover to kill him, but after this, there's no way. It can't wait. He's too dangerous, and they're too enraged. This is for them the final straw. They can't take him at this particular moment because obviously the whole crowd is honoring him as the Messiah, but they do at least speak out and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They understand the significance of what's being said and what's being done. They understand the significance of what he's doing and how people are regarding him. And they say to him, At least, don't you want to shut this down? Is this really what you want? And Jesus says to them unapologetically, if I shut this down and make these people be quiet, the creation itself will shout out my praise. The king of the universe says, I will be worshipped. I will be worshipped. One way or the other, this is what I deserve. This is who I am. And he says to them, this thing about the stones crying. And I wish we had more time to, to delve into this. But the way this wraps up in Luke is this. We're told right after this, when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. The word is for weeping is this, this, this absolute intense word for just sobbing almost uncontrollably. When Jesus approaches the city, he looks and he sees this city who he loves of his people. And he knows that their rejection of him is final. He knows that. And he knows that he's going to die on the Roman cross soon. And he knows that God's judgment is coming on these people. And he tells them at the end of this chapter what that's going to look like. It's going to look like mass slaughter. It's going to look like the city being reduced to rubble. It's going to look like the temple... In all of its beauty, not having one stone left on top of another. And we're left with this incredible contrast that's hard to imagine. We have crowds that are exuberantly worshipping by the thousands. We have a Savior who's uncontrollably sobbing. And we have Pharisees who are absolutely seething with anger. This is a recipe for something significant to happen. What are we to take away from all this? Well, there's at least a couple of things. First, this whole event reminds us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the sovereign king. He is the creator of everything and he owns everything. And if he wants a piece of his creation, it belongs to him and he can take it. He is sovereign over time. That means everything that happens happens according to his timeline. Nobody forces his hand. Nobody surprises him. Nobody sneaks up on him. Events take place according to his timeline. He's sovereign over time. Only God is sovereign over creation. And only God is sovereign over time. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is God. He's nothing short of that. And I think other than that, we need to remember that Jesus is the king. And as the king, he deserves all worship, honor, and praise. He deserves worship. For people who truly understand who he is, there is absolutely no excuse for not living a life that overflows with exuberant worship for the king. The the reality that for so many Christians... Their, their heart of worship is so dull and dead and empty and unenthusiastic and joyless is because one of two things. Either they don't understand who Christ really is or they're not truly and appropriately honoring him as the great king that he is and giving him the glory that's due his name. To understand who he is and to come before him with half-hearted, weak-willed, pathetic sort of worship is a disgrace it's a disgrace. It's not an honor. If you think that showing up at church gets you brownie points with the Lord just for participation, you like know, we give out participation trophies these days? It doesn't work like that. The Lord Jesus is a great and mighty king. He's the redeemer. He is the almighty king of the universe and he deserves the honor and glory due a King. Why would we offer him anything less than that? Why would we come before him half-heartedly? Why would we come before him with weak and sad and mournful worship all the time? Why would we not explode with joy before the king who's come to redeem us? He deserves all worship, honor, and praise. If 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 his creatures won't do it, his creation will. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are remarkable. You're remarkable. You are the great and mighty king of the universe. There's no question that that's who you showed us yourself to be. This whole event of triumphal entry was all about you declaring to the world your kingship. You are the one prophesied by Zechariah. That you are the glory of God incarnate. That you are the great king, the Messiah, the redeemer who deserves the worship of your people. And Lord, even though people didn't fully understand it, not the disciples or not the crowd, they at least honored you with appropriate worship. May we do the same. We recognize you as sovereign over all creation. We recognize you as sovereign over all of our lives. Just like there's nothing that happens on your, in your life that, that's, not, that's outside of your divine timeline. Nothing happens on, in our lives outside of your divine timeline either. You're sovereign over your people. Everything that happens in our lives goes according to your plan. The good, the things that are hard, the things that are painful, the things that we expect, the things that we don't expect. Help us to search our own hearts this morning, Lord Jesus, and honestly ask ourselves the question, do we render to you the kind of worship that is due the king of the universe? Or do we only offer you worship when you meet our expectations, like the crowd that particular day, but the moment you don't meet our expectations, that you don't give us what we want, or that you remove something from our lives that we love dearly, our worship ceases help us to see you this morning for who you are help us to understand that you're the great king of the universe who came to die for our sins and redeem our souls and who is one day coming back to execute justice on earth and forever save your people may our lives and our worship reflect a clear understanding of who you are. Make it so by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.